This episode is brought to you by Harris Resort SoCal. Nestled against a rolling hillside and just down the road from Palomar Mountain, guests at Harris Resort SoCal can expect gorgeous views, friendly staff, available night and day to encourage everyone to have a great time. When I was there recently, I had a chance to dine at California's first and the nation's largest house kitchen. And it's true, the beef wellington and sticky toffee dessert are great. The restaurant is inspired by the hit TV show and features a menu approved by the Michelin star celebrity chef, Gordon Ramsay himself. Hope to see you all at Harris Resort SoCal in 2024. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Yeah. Okay, T. My name is T. Bui, uh, or Bui Fung T, as my mother named me. I'm an author, an educator, and sometimes organizer. What does it mean to be Vietnamese to you? It, it feels lucky in a way, um, and unlucky in some other ways. Um, it means having lived through a lot or having parents who lived through a lot more. And it means getting to um, like speak in a musical language. Um, and it means having perspective on uh, you know, living here in the U.S., uh, before we get into any of these questions, I want to thank you, um, first off, for coming on. And then what you just, how you just reframed musical. You just said a language that's musical. And and through other interviews, I've also kind of experienced that reframing from you uh, with the diacritics and the pronunciation. And I think many of us in our generation grew up very ashamed of this tonal language and it sounding very jarring you know compared to you know the romance languages and so thank you for for normalizing it and now not just normalizing but elevating it um because that's uh, such an important thing for confidence from for, for vietnamese kids yeah thank you for making this amazing like collection of all kinds of vietnamese voices in the diaspora you know i'm learning stuff from following you about like fairy tales and history that I didn't know growing up. It's so nice to have it, you know, in the language that I read better because, you know, <laughs> I love Vietnamese uh, as a language, but I didn't get to grow up learning it in the same way that I learned English. So English is kind of like the, the language that I need to reclaim this heritage. Um, so it's, it's really great to have this resource. Well, shout out to my uh, social media team at Good House. Uh, they put together and they compile everything and, you know, they pass it through to me and I kind of make a little adjustments here and there. But for the most part, uh, that team is uh, is phenomenal. Um, nice. It does take a team, right? Yes, it, it really does. It really does. And they do a great job. Um, before we get into the the your work in, in writing and illustration, um, can we talk about sort of the state of, of education in the U.S. as it pertains to your experience as an educator? Um, sure. Yeah, where, where do you want to start? Yeah. So you, um, did you come out of uh, university as a, what, what did you study? Did you want to be a teacher or did you, what were you trying no. to get into? <laughs> no, I, um, I wanted to either be a civil rights lawyer or an artist. So I, I double majored um, in political science and art. And then I switched from political science to legal studies 
because nicer people were in legal studies. And at this time, I, you know, sort of idealized um, the judicial branch of government as like, you know, the cool branch. Um, things have changed, uh, but I did get inspired by a lot of uh, history of the civil rights movement and um, wanted to, you know, help make the world a better place. And so I thought I could either do that through uh, the law or through art. And uh, then I went to New York to be an artist and I had a terrible time in grad school. I almost flunked out of my MFA in sculpture. Um, and that, then that's when I, and I stopped drawing for a few years. Um, and I felt like an outsider, you know? Do you mind sharing that? What, what do you mean you had a bad experience? Um, you know, I was young. I was like 23. And I, part of it was my fault. I went to, went to into grad school too green. And I should have probably just tried to be an artist on my own first to find my, find my bearings more. But um, that shouldn't alone be a reason for almost flunking out. The, the other reason was that I wanted to go explore my Asian American identity and there were, there were no faculty uh, except one who were willing to support that. And in fact, several were pretty hostile to the idea. Um, you know, terrible things were said to me. Um, and, and, and then just some offhanded comments that were really unsupportive. And this was like, you know, 20 years ago. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, I had a bad time. But I was very stubborn, so I and, and I kept getting in trouble for making work that was too narrative. I guess the the thing at the time was to make more abstract, formalist sculpture, and I wasn't doing that. So the stubborn part in me um, then created a shadow puppet play that was completely narrative, <laughs> um, and I just like was persistent about getting it to the quality that they expected. Um, and then I left and. Um, wanted to bring art to other outsiders like me. And so that's when I um, found a, a couple ways to get into teaching in New York City schools. Um, I ended up doing an MF, another master's in art education because um, I found like the perfect person to work with at NYU. She was amazing and mentored me um, and helped me find like the kind of art that I wanted to teach and like why I wanted to teach art. So then I became a public school teacher in New York City. Oh. So you were getting the MFA at NYU and you got a master's in art education at NYU as well? Uh, the MFA was at Bard College in upstate New York. Got it. Got and, then I was, and I was living in New York City. And, and what was that experience like teaching in New York City? Uh, was it high school? Yeah, it was high school. Um, during the training, I, I like did all the ages, you know, everything from kindergarten up through uh, high school. And um, I really liked high schoolers. I really connected with their their maturity and snarkiness, but like they're still young enough to have an impact on. Yeah. It was it, you know, like sometimes you watch and and I, this is a complete uh, you know, naive question, but were they rough kids uh, in the inner cities? I mean, I don't know. I always like New Yorkers. I think they're a lot of fun. Um you know, the average person that you run into on the street is really funny and witty. And um, the kids who grow up in New York City really show that. <laughs> so they're, they're very sharp with their tongues, you know, so if they don't like you, they, they will let you know. Um, so it is then, you know, a pretty big high priority for you to become likable. Um, so uh, I had a good time. I befriended a lot of the kids who got in trouble a lot. And they would tend to come to my classroom and hang out. And I would give them extra credit for 
things that weren't necessarily academic. Um, and that was just a way to like bring them back into the fold. Yeah. You know? So respecting them as a human being and not just like a cog in a in an educational system um, helped a lot. What do you think made you relate to who they were? I don't know, because um, I was a good student, you know, growing up, um, maybe because I had a lot of pressure to be, but I kind of liked the rebels and um, the creative thinkers, and I taught art, and, you know, the kids turned me into the, the, the art club advisor. <laughs> what are your um, sentiments on the education system in the United States today? Um, you know, my feeling about being a teacher in public schools was like, it was trying to do this really hard job, um, while people were trying to burn your building down. So it's tough from all angles, you know, and then during COVID, like it's, it's, it was impossible for teachers to do a good job because they didn't even have like continuity. Yeah. They didn't know what was going to happen the next month. And you, this is a sentiment you feel today, like teaching is you're trying to do your job in a burning building now like this is how you feel about it the last few years this is how i felt about it before the pandemic so wow. i can't even imagine i haven't been a public school teacher during the pandemic but you know hats off to them mm. and in terms of like school shooting so now i think going into school shooting is kind of like not relevant to our conversation because you've been out of the classroom for a few years right um, well, I've, yeah, I've, I've, I have not been a regular teacher. I've gone, I've, I've like dropped down into, into classrooms, which is like really the, the nicest way to be around students. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm curious to, to hear high school, you know, um, administration, faculty, people feel about, you know, the state of, of, you know, heightened securities in, in our high schools today. Yeah. Well, I was, I was, teaching in New York City when there is a sniper in Silver Springs, Maryland. I don't know if you remember that, but that was like around highway and the freeway or something like that. Yeah. And so we uh, had to do a lockdown at school. We practiced a lockdown. And I remember feeling pretty panicky about the, the amount of responsibility that was in my hands um, and how calm one had to be. And then my first year teaching in Oakland, uh, there was a situation where a potential, uh, you know, a, a potential danger was actually a student in my class. And I was just supposed to continue teaching class and like keep him in my class until the authorities came to take him away. And that was pretty scary too. Um, just knowing that, okay, there's no one in charge here but me and I have to keep a lid on things and keep everyone safe until someone else comes to relieve me. I uh, spent about a year commuting to Oakland. Uh, I was seeing somebody in Oakland for for uh, for, a, for a while, and you know, I, the sense of security that you know that I had walking around in Oakland is is uh, it's sort of a dangerous uh, place, and I can't imagine being a a high school teacher um, in in Oakland. Uh, what was that experience like for you? Um, I mean. Yeah, it's it's it, it's it could be a tough place. I think what I thought about on the daily was how um, it was a dangerous place for my students. You know, they 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 took the bus to school. Um, my students were all like recent immigrants to the U.S. and English language learners, high school age. 
And they'd get mugged regularly um, or they lived in neighborhoods where there were like shootings on the regular and just more crime, you know, like poor neighborhood problems. Um, and that's what they had to deal with on a regular basis. Whereas I had the privilege to, you know, live in a nicer part of town. So I thought about the impact on them a lot and how that I was going to have to like carry a lot more than just teaching them like academic content because I needed to support them as human beings going through this hard time in their lives um, while in a in neighborhoods that didn't feel safe. Now, while you're teaching all these years, you probably had a seed of, you know, the art, right? You had to really go back to producing uh, art, your, your yeah. art. Can you tell me about that? Uh, I don't know if it was a struggle for you or what the journey was like uh, while you're having your day job teaching and then, you know, having this sort of urge to to produce. Like, can you talk about Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I guess for some people, like the urge goes away after a while. And then for me, it was like this hunger that got more and more intense um, the longer I wasn't feeding it. Um, and so for a while, I was like living vicariously through my students because I taught art. Um, and even when I wasn't given an, an, a class that was strictly art, like I got given a computer literacy class and I turned it into a movie making class. Wow. <laughs> um, I just got them cameras and got them excited about making movies. And mm -hmm. that was how I taught them computer skills. So I was living vicariously through the projects that I assigned to my students, like I had my art class, um, you know, tell their immigration stories in the form of comics for a few years. Um, so that's, I mean, kind of like the the birth of um, where your your work comes from that uh, period. Uh, yeah, well, no, the birth of, of where the best we could do uh, comes from was when, when I was still living in New York. Um, I had already. Um, Actually, while I was in grad school for the, the education masters, my thesis advisor, who was the, the great person I talked about, actually let me do a thesis project that wasn't really related to education. It was um, interviews with my family and sort of a literature review on like how the Vietnam War had been represented in the US in pop culture and academia. And um, I just got to talk about representation and then try to offer an alternative to the kind of crap that had been done. Yeah. Um, and I didn't want it to just be words. So I added like photographs and some drawings and some bad graphic design. And the, the book that I made was like actually the beginning of the best we could do. And then I got a grant from Fund for Teachers to go to Vietnam and take my mother. Um, and we went through all the places that we had ever lived as a family and that they had ever lived. And um, then I had all this material, but yeah. then I had to teach. And I was also pregnant with my son when I went. So, you know, life kind of got in the way. Mm -hmm. um, and that's partly why the best we could do took so long. What what year was that, uh, that book finished uh, in that early form? That was in 2003. And then I went to Vietnam on that grant with my mother in 2005 the yeah. summer of 2005 and then my and then my son was born 
So you have this book for a few years and it's it's sitting there, right? In your mind, were you thinking that you got to expand this somehow in, and, and sharpen it up and, and refine it? Or was it just sitting there and it just collecting dust? <laughs> kind of. <laughs> I mean, it was, yeah, it was um, sitting there collecting dust, but um, I think I was sharpening my skills because I, I knew that I hadn't, I hadn't done comics before and I needed to teach myself this new language that I wanted to write in. Um, so I was reading books and then, you know, teaching is a great way to learn new things because then you have to turn it around quickly and explain it to somebody else. Um, and then just the iterative process of teaching helps you refine like, okay, this is a good approach. This is not such a good approach. And like, while I was teaching the students to make their own comics, I was kind of teaching myself how I wanted to make comics. But why comics? Why teach the kids comics and not another form? I, I'm just curious, like, why? Yeah. yeah why um, that form? Well, you know, partly it was that I was teaching English language learners. And so uh, English was not like the best language, right? These words were not the best language for them to be using. Um, they had all this knowledge in them that that wasn't verbal and wasn't in English. Um, and, and a lot of them were like really good at drawing, like my Korean refugee students who had like grown up in refugee camps in Thailand, they had this like memory of their, their um, camp, like burned into their memories um, and they could draw it, you know, and, and, and those drawings conveyed so much more information than whatever they could write. So the combination of the two unlocked these really powerful stories. And then at what point did you go, I think I can adapt that over to my book. That was already an ambition from before. And I think it was just back going back to that narrative impulse. I really wanted to tell stories. Sculpture wasn't going to do it. Even like this sort of narrative shadow puppet play wasn't specific enough. It turned out like I really wanted to tell specific stories with specific scenes and characters who spoke. And also it was a revenge project against all of the bad Vietnam War movies that I had grown up watching. Um, and I, you know, it's really expensive to try to make a movie. You can't really come out of nowhere and and, and make a movie um, without at least some fundraising and resources and also like skill. So making a comic book was like my cheap one person version of making a, a new movie about Vietnamese people. Um, and my drawings are replacements for the stereotypes that still linger in people's heads um, and like me telling the story was like reclaiming real estate for stories told from the point of view of Vietnamese people who experienced these things. Yeah. And just my opinion, I think that um, the best we could do the way it, the form, uh, the comic book form is is so much, it's just so appropriate for the way that the narrative has unfolded. I mean, in film, it's sort of you got to set up so much crap. I mean, I'm talking about the financing all the way to the story, mm -hmm. the way everything's structured. But this, um, it, while I was reading it, allowed me to really breathe. And, you know, I had it on my uh, nightstand in my, next to my bed. And it allowed me to sort of go through it for about a month. And, you know, sometimes I would just turn back to previous chapters and kind of, it. it was, it's perfect because you can really allow it to soak in, um, the stories and and the vignettes to to kind of like go to bed thinking about this stuff and it just it, it, oh, it was it's very appropriate. Thank yeah. you. That makes me happy to hear that you took your time because I've heard 
I've heard from people that they read it in an hour or two, and I'm like, great, that took me 10 years, but <laughs> you know. I have friends that read it in three days. Mm -hmm. And then I just wanted to be the contrarian because I'm like, you know, this, there's no reason to, to rush through a book like this. So mm -hmm. I took my time um, reading it. And, um, you know, I, I wanted to ask you about, um, as artists, there's a, a certain inability to focus in on one thing um, because we're so creative and, and our brains are constantly having new ideas. Were there other competing narratives or stories that you had uh, in the production line um, beyond um, the, the story? Book? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. There always are. I always have like five things I'd like yeah. to be working on um, and some, a lot of them are non, not nonfiction. Um, some of them are, um, but then you have to focus in order to do yes. things well. Yeah. And, and how did you focus on the best we could do? I mean, there's like four other projects in your book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think like, have you ever seen that, that diagram of like, uh, I think it, it's, it comes from, I think there's like a Japanese word, like ikigai or something. Yes where you've got like the overlap of four different things and like, like including what you're good at and um, what you care about and what you can get paid for. And then there's the, the, the paddle that's like what other people need. Um, that one drives me a lot. Mm, it's like a Venn diagram, the Ikigai Venn diagram. Yes. Right? Yeah. 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 So, you know, my other projects fit into these other paddles, but the best we could do felt like something that I could do and care about and get paid for, but also that was useful for other people, even though it was about myself. Yeah. Now you say it was about yourself, right? The best we could do? It wasn't supposed to be. It was just supposed to be an oral history of my parents, but people, early readers kept asking for me to be in it more. Be because uh, when I think about the best we could do, I'm I often you know I was going to ask you like the we refers to you and your family, or are you speaking on behalf of just your parents or Vietnamese diaspora in general? <laughs> I'll leave that one kind of open ended. I was thinking a lot about parents and children when that um, when that title came to me. Um, it's a it's 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 a it's a title that tries to wrap up some empathy and understanding, as well as, uh, I mean, okay, so the book is told from my point of view, but I'm listening to my parents talk about their story. So there is like, kind of like different, there are different hats being worn, and there's a there's an attempt to understand. Um, and, the, you know, we did the best we could do is a commonly heard phrase, right? Sometimes the best we the best someone could do wasn't good enough for you, though. So there's that. Um, so it's a somewhat ambiguous title that's kind of about parents and children. Yeah. Do you ever think about that with your son? Oh, all the time. Yeah, well, that's the point of empathy. And that's why I start this, the whole book with like me crossing that threshold into parenthood, because that's when I realized oh, this is this is a job I'm going to mess up at some point if not all the time. How old is your son now? He's 16, going on 17. 
And, and how candid and honest are you about that sort of journey about fucking things up? Do you? <laughs> I'm I'm pretty candid. Um, I think I try to be a lot more transparent yeah. than than my parents were, and and I also have learned to apologize pretty quickly if I make a mistake. And I think about this often because my kids are three and five, and I wonder: Am I making them softer? <laughs> this, is a, this is a common anxiety let's talk about this yeah. <laughs> because like we grew up hard our parents are like what <laughs> yeah Vietnamese, this is what yeah. my mom yeah mom and dad always used to say we don't fucking apologize for anything that's mm -hmm. what my mom and dad oh we are vietnamese parents we do not say sorry that's one thing we do not do my that was in my house like mm -hmm. never my mom and dad never apologized now it's a little bit diff different because, you know, I think it's, you know, over the years they've, but when I was growing up, they don't. And then, so I feel like if they don't apologize, you just have to suck it up. And there's no closure to these little vignettes of like destruction that <laughs> makes, us, make, makes us a little harder and more resilient. Are we doing a disservice to our, our children? Yeah, I've, I've, I've often wondered the same thing, like, Oh man, am I taking something away from from my son's character by being nice to him or by providing for him? Right? Um, I don't know that you can manufacture uh, adversity, though. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not honest. Um, so at some point, I have to admit. Well, you know, I'm also living this comfortable middle class life now, and and my daily life is not full of you know strife. Um, so why should his be? Um, and then sometimes life will give you some adversity and then that's when you learn how soft or hard or resilient or resourceful your kid is and it's heartbreaking but also it's eye-opening and I've learned that my son is stronger than I thought he was and also I've learned that um you know when he doesn't have me he he takes care of himself quite well and he's actually he, he steps up um, and then as soon as I come back, he oversleeps and I have to get him up for work. And and I think that's about the comfort of having someone there for you. Someone to take care of you lets you relax. And when you don't get to relax and you're hard and, and all of these things that we're assigning all this value to, you get stressed out and the stress hurts you in other ways, right? So I'm hoping that, you know, my son will have the stamina to live a long and healthy life if I save him from some of the stress that comes from having to be so self-reliant. Yeah, this is something I often think about. My, I, I'm very proud of how my brother and I turned out. Um, and because of this non-manufactured adversity that we had to go through and watching our parents struggle and get ripped off. And, you know, we watched my dad get ripped off multiple times in business. And that sort of sharpened the way we saw life. And mm -hmm. really, uh, you know, we're driving delivery vans at 13, 14 years old in the city and here in LA. And I, I appreciate those experiences so much. And somehow I want to hand off those kinds of not adversity, but sort of those kind of fun experiences that were living outside of the, were living outside of the, the law. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And uh, it's, it's unfortunate. I mean, and that's why I, I, I think that, um, having um the the best we could do 
and the the story of the the adversity is really helpful for future generations to kind of get a, a taste or a glimpse of of what our parents went through yeah hopefully hopefully they'll appreciate it i think that um it's also been helpful for my son to see like present day versions of adversity um because so they maybe they're more relatable because they're like real people and things are happening in front of them so you know currently i'm writing about people who are, are formerly incarcerated and i talked to him about their like ongoing struggles with um you know ice maybe will pick them up or try to deport them and this is just something they're dealing with as they continue to go to work or have families um and you know he might go fishing with a person like that and that, that that's like uncle simon um and then i could talk about my students and and what they're going through so hopefully like just having awareness of like the different lives that people are leading in the same country at the same time gives my son some perspective and and appreciation for how he does have it good and then i'm honest about things too yeah. like you know when he's little and he asked me why do people even smoke and i was like because it's fun you know <laughs> but it's it'll also give you cancer so i just try to tell the truth um because it tastes good it makes you feel good <laughs> <laughs> and there's a reason for all of that so uh i i, I say and it's nowhere land right the project is that the mm -hmm. name? okay yeah i i have it uh for a little bit later but I'll, I'll, let's talk about it um how far along are you uh, in the development uh, of it? <laughs> Hopefully this summer, after this summer, I'll be able to give you a, a more complete answer. But um, I have like tons of, of, of research and material, like interviews with people and sketches and um, kind of a, a, a sprawling outline of the whole book. Um, but I think I'm going to tear that up and start again this summer. Holy cow. Is it also <laughs> a comic? Uh, yeah, yeah. It, I guess. Uh, what, what, I guess it would be a. Yeah, it's a big comic book, like probably almost the same length as the best we could do. In by the by the time I'm done with it, and and nonfiction. Now, when you work on another project and you're kind of doing it and shaping it like uh, the best we could do, do you think of changing the style? of it or do you kind of keep within the same parameters the, the color the feel all of uh, that yeah no it, it's good to backwards plan when you're doing something big so to be realistic about uh how much change there can be so um you know if i'm going for something with this much length and i also want it to be good writing i might put more of my eggs in that basket and fewer in like coloring and, and other new skills that i want to develop um, so I've let myself like explore like color in the children's books that I've illustrated, but the style of something this long is going to need to be more simple and probably only like one spot color plus black line work. And I'll so probably draw digitally or maybe a combination of analog and digital. Wow. This book is going to be longer than the best we could do? No, hopefully a little bit shorter, but yeah, around book, book length. I want to go back to um, the style of the best we could do. Um, it, it, I've read. <laughs> it was also my my built-in disclaimer that title. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, I see what you did there. Um, <laughs> the 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 style the the 
the movement, the the feel of the artwork, uh, that has to have evolved over time, right? Oh, yeah. I had to redraw the early pages a lot because my style changed so much over the course of the 10 years working on it. Yeah, it feels um, it feels alive, but alive uh, in a period piece, like a mm. film, right? It just, it has that feel. And, and I know that some, like an artist like you would, could never come up with that in a year, right? It's, it's like, it, there's a true evolution of, like, when did you know that you were finished with it? The, 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 the feel, the design of, of the feeling of it. Uh, when I finished it. Uh, no, I think I got up to like chapter eight out of 10 when I finally felt like, oh, I know how to draw comics. <laughs> you know, this is definitely not a work of mastery. I don't look back on it and go, wow, these are really good. I actually cringe looking at most of the pages now. Um, but it was a time capsule of where I was at during those time, during those years. The best you could do. <laughs> it really was. <laughs> And then uh, there's the Eisner Award. Like, did oh, that kind of left I mean, yeah, I got nominated. I didn't win it. Oh, okay. But that's, I mean, that's a big deal as well, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you see uh, that coming? Did you, I mean. Uh, you know, when you work hard on something and, and, and you feel like you made something that hasn't been made before, yeah, you, you kind of hope for some recognition for sure. Um, and I, I learned some of this from from a colleague of mine who was nominated the same year, John Jennings, um, who actually did win it that year for uh, his graphic novel adaptation of Octavia Butler's Kindred. Um, he was like, we better get an award, you and me both. I was like, okay, John, yeah. You know, so <laughs> I, was, I was pumped. Um, and it's, it's always nice, it's always nice to be recognized. Yeah. But it's also nice to watch other people win. So it's all good. Especially if they're friends, right? Well, especially if their work is good. Yeah, I guess if they were a jerk, you would be a little bit miffed, but it, it's fine. You know, the big thing is getting to make work. Cause I mean, I'll be honest with you, it's a lot easier to be an artist than to be a public school teacher. Really? Yeah. I mean, when you make when you make money as an artist, sure. Like it's hard to get to that point where you're you can actually make a living on this, but once you do, it's like I mean, I call my own hours. I can say yeah. yes or no to things. You know, uh, just the demands on me are so much less. And yeah, it's so hard to be a teacher. And, and that's the thing about the questions that I asked in the beginning. It's like, I see the deterioration of the fabric of American society, starting with the difficulty of American teachers. Yeah, we don't, I don't think that we actually love kids in this country or else we would devote more resources to them. Um, and even a, in a progressive state like California, it's, it's still like 40 something, it's ranked 40 something out of 50 states in terms of per pupil funding from the state. And that has to do with our tax structure, but you know, where are the resources and, and why is it? so hard to be a teacher and why did why do we demand that they solve all of society's problems and we still pretend that all they do is teach content academic content you know um so there, it's no wonder that there's a, a shortage of teachers right now 
What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. But why are we not funding more? What do you think it is? Why is the... <laughs> yeah, I mean, like my cynical view is like we don't love our kids enough. Um, What's the practical side of it? What do you mean? Why can't we allocate more? Is it Well, there's a lot of segregation in this country, right? It's like people love their own kids a lot, but can they love everybody's kids? You know, why why is there so much like self-imposed segregation? Why is there like white fright, white flight from urban schools? Why do the why do the black and brown kids and and the southeast asian kids get left in the in the poorest you know, roughest schools is because people took their resources and, and, and went to more desirable places. And then you definitely see some color lines there. Yeah, there's probably a major dichotomy in the quality of education in affluent neighborhoods versus the lower end neighborhoods. Yeah, I went to some of those lower end neighborhood schools and yeah, even even decades ago, education was not good in those places. But is it is do we have a chance and an opportunity to give it to make it better? How can we as a society, an American society, make that better? Yeah. Um <clears throat> I think is it ever it, gonna get better? I think it could. You know, I I in spite of talking about a lot of problems, I remain an optimist. Um some days it's easier than others um to be an optimist but i am ultimately um hopeful that you know it's never too late it's never too late to to swing things around and part of it has to do with a belief in a common cause i i do believe in public education because that is that's supposed to be the place where you know democratically we can provide free quality education to all kids not just some kids um <clears throat> and it has to be kind of a group leap of faith right so you have to have like administrators that people can believe in they have to have good teachers that will work there and the parents also have to buy into this idea that together you know we can make schools that are good for kids in inner cities uh, some parents are working two to three jobs they can care less about what their kids are going through because they're or they just don't have the bandwidth to right like our parents yeah. Yeah. My, my parents never went to school events yeah. And I think that that needs to be addressed as well, but it, that could never be addressed because the way I think American society is moving, it's um, the bottom 50%, bottom 30% of society is working so difficult. The, the, their lives are so difficult. They're, they're never going to have the bandwidth to, to worry about their, their children's education or they just, they just want to get by. Yeah, yeah, and so in the in, at Oakland International High School, which is the the, the alternative public school that I helped found, um, like I think twelve years ago now. Um, in the beginning, it was just about the students, but as the school expanded, and you know, we all wrote tons of grants to make these things possible. Um, it expanded into a community service school, so outside partners were brought in to address some of these things. So, you know, um, mental health services, counseling, but also like uh, 
you know, people who were familiar with the family and the whole family situation, right. um, English classes for the parents, um, a community garden, uh, oh. uh, bringing the food bank in to do food distribution at the school site. All of these things were like part of a bigger picture. How, how is it going? How's the school? The school's doing great. It's a model school. Why can't we have more of those? They're really hard to run. <laughs> so, um, I mean, part of it is luck, right? Like it's, it, it, it was like a really talented, hardworking team of people who pulled it off and they were supported by an internationals network that had done a really good job for two decades in New York. Um, so, I mean, I think that there are schools like this, but part of it is like this school chose to be a public school rather than a charter school. So, I mean, some charter schools are amazing and they do this kind of work, but the, the charter school like uh, system really erodes the public school system, right? Because it takes the funds away. So wow. there are bad charter schools out there too. You know, uh, I have this idea of catharsis that's built into my questions uh, about the best we could do. But is there, you know, with the, the, the school that you came up with 12 years ago and you helped found, um, is there a sense of catharsis after you, you've built that and it's sort of up and running? Or is it a, you know, I can, I can imagine how optimistic you were when you started and began that project with these people, right? With the team of people. But after 12 years seeing what you, what you just said, sometimes, you know, it's very difficult to manage an operation like that. Do you have the sense of relief that it exists or does it depress you more that that thing is very difficult to pull off and now the hope of or the, the despair levels kick in a little bit harder? I mean, it's more real than a book, right? Like it's it's constant. Whereas the book, I I finished it. It's out in the world. It's doing its own thing. Um, I don't know. I think like it's the team, right? There there was a yeah. whole team of people who made this school happen, and and act, and you know, I was just one small part uh, of it of of that picture. And so many people have gone through there. I don't even know most of the people there anymore. When I when I go visit. Um, so it's both it's both uh, daunting and incredible that this school exists. I helped I helped get it off the ground, but then it became its own thing. And it's not that it's self-running, but there are other people who have taken the reins. And I think any kind of like social project is going to be like that. And I have so much respect for people who can do this on a daily basis. Um, I only had the stamina to do it for seven years, <clears throat> and then I had to tend to, to my own hunger to, to make art. Going back to um, the best we could do and this idea of catharsis, um, was there catharsis after the book being in the world? And was there a sense of relief from the weight of, of your family, our family, our collective sense of identity? Do you feel like it was um, something that you were finished with and you could move on or is it something that continues to kind of grow and you're still very much uh still growing from it you know i guess the question is I i'm not asked, looking for an absolute answer but i'm looking for what your kind of overall uh result in in your emotions uh yeah 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 uh if i could think of one 
moment of catharsis because it, it wasn't like a clear catharsis like you're onto something there um but it was the moment that i went back to vietnam after finishing the book and i went back to research another project um, i was interested in learning more about climate change in the mekong delta and i went um and i had this completely different relationship with the country like i was no longer looking at everybody for pieces of my own story and i wasn't needing them to answer any kind of yearning in me because i had worked that out in the book and so i felt like i could finally uh, see this country more objectively as this really vibrant place that had a lot of struggles too full of like 95 million people who are not me so i felt like i was able to remove myself from from things more and just see people for for, for who they were and and learn about them in, in a new way well what a sense of um a growth right it's I think Vietnamese Americans of our generation, um, have, some of us have not been allowed to to reach that that feeling. You know, we carry a lot of um, unseen weight around. Uh, but you did the work, and I think that you uh, deserve to to have that experience when you go back, and you know, you can separate that. Uh, the weight of, of of all of the meaning and you know and it, and that's something that's unspoken uh un, un, you know in our families we don't talk about too often but now yeah. we start now we're starting to uh the conversation yeah yeah, yeah. I, and i think maybe this is the flip side to being so tough and hard right and not talking about things is that we have a lot of unresolved uh we have a lot of unresolved issues in us and and we need to heal those parts in order to get this catharsis yeah you you know the uh, the Mekong Delta and the um, climate change and can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so what I learned and my research is a, a two three year, years old now, but I think it's not too much has changed. Um, the the Mekong Delta is home to at the time seventeen million people, and it's like the the you know what they call the breadbasket of America it's it's like the rice bowl of Vietnam like it produces you know like half the country's rice and and a lot of other things too um, and it's becoming less and less usable for agriculture because of one like uh, dams being built upriver in other countries like you know have taken a lot of the nutrients out of the the soil but also the sea is rising so that's actually irreparable damage when that happens because salt in, yeah. in yeah, salt kills everything. Um, so this is kind of horrifying because we, we, we see a lot in the news about floods and typhoons and those are more vivid images, but like it's a lot, <laughs> turns out it's really hard to represent the sea slowly rising because <laughs> it's not like it's gonna flood everything. Yeah. It's just that it kills everything slowly. Um, and what that's going to do is cause everyone to have to migrate away. And that's a lot of people. Um, plus like food, you know, is <laughs> food is important for our survival. Um, so I was, I was pretty terrified and I went, wanted to go understand it from the point of view of the farmers and, and people who lived there. And it turns out that <laughs> Vietnamese people are so resilient that they weren't talking about it as a problem in the same way that I had heard about it as a problem here in the US. They were just surviving it like another thing. 
like what else have they you know i mean they were like what else have you got like you know people turn like the craters that are left from american bombs into ponds and things there so this is just like another thing that they have to adjust to um so it's kind of amazing and also uh, i haven't figured out exactly how to write about it yet well the the dams that are happening in other countries uh that spill over into the tributaries that what you know the rivers and 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 the water supply uh that's a very alarming thing that we don't hear much about mm -hmm. there you know i spoke to somebody um last year about the activists that are in the mekong and trying to figure out how the control of the water coming in um because it's china right i mean let's be frank uh mm -hmm. it's china and it's a very easy way for a country like china to control the rice basket or the rice bowl mm -hmm. of, of this country of vietnam mm -hmm. right and it's something that we as vietnamese americans or vietnamese diaspora we are not really aware of that's happening in i mean a country our motherland and it's a big danger that's uh that in in about a decade could really choke out the economy and the sustenance of of farmers in in that area yeah yeah it's a lot to deal with yeah and i don't know if uh enough attention is being um spotlighted um for that issue in, in the mekong i i really want to talk more about it with anybody who um who is involved in in the activist uh community for that if i yeah if i okay we can talk more later yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll connect you with people that i meet yeah that's definitely something that um that i really wanted to address i've you know when i heard about it a year ago i was like wow this is well because my family comes from that right my, my dad's family uh, oh yeah that area and we still have uh, some family in that area so there's risk of you know life deteriorating in, in a decade or two yeah yes um <clears throat> i mean going back to the resilience like i met that like i was reading about how a lot of farmers who are switching from rice to uh, farming shrimp as the water is getting saltier and then like when they want to have like um rice and shrimp they just like collect rainwater and they you know take down they di dilute the salinity of the water with more rainwater it's brilliant actually wow wow talk about resilience yeah so i don't know one of my one of my five ideas that i'm juggling all the time is i kind of want to try a, a a short story that's like speculative fiction i guess like set 50 years in the future and what i imagine an area of the Mekong might look like, you know, like everybody has left for work in the city and there's nothing left but salty water and salty women. And I, I want to, I have this story that I'm crafting right now about two of them. God, that sounds so interesting. <laughs> you had me at salty women. <laughs> right? <laughs> Who doesn't want a story about two salty Vietnamese women? Yeah, you know there was a film a few years ago by uh, Ang Win uh, Vamin. Uh, he directed a movie called Nook, 
Um, I don't know if you you're aware of it. I haven't gotten to see it yet, but I've yeah. heard about it. It's sort of like the the you know climate change and the whole country's like I think flooded and it's just all water. And it's uh, it's a very real thing. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm sensing this like hesitation and excitement in you about content that 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 our diaspora creates. Like I like I'm I'm gonna guess that part of why you kept the book on your on your table and read it slowly was you weren't sure if I was gonna traumatize you, right? You know that is definitely part of uh yeah you have to be cautious yeah it's part of the equation yeah that's why i still haven't watched the the 10 or 20 part ken burns documentary on the war because i don't know i don't trust him (laughs) i mean i don't trust an american to make stuff for me you know like it might be high quality stuff but i i don't know if it's gonna re-traumatize me without giving me anything to heal myself with Mm, that's a, so such a good point. I also approach like all things Vietnamese with a little bit of caution because I have to I have to shark around them a little bit. You know, we I feel like sometimes we not we me. Um, <laughs> I, I want to avoid the trauma. I, I want to move away away from the war speak and mm-hmm. you know, projects that are involved. Uh, you know, I I'm crafting a, a solo episode like under ten minutes uh, to just speak into the camera and push uh diff- like the mekong issue and just giving information and historical sort of um nuggets um but i and i'm very aware of staying away from traumatic uh news like i don't want to do that i want but at the same time we got to ring the alarm bells because the mekong is going to shit if we don't yeah yeah we can't exist only in our fantasies yeah. <clears throat> yeah, so for me it's about telling the bad news, but also maybe telling some tool, giving some tools or resources or some good news or giving you the story of some people who are trying to do something about it. And it turns out, you know, the last several years in the U.S. have been like a shit show. Can I just say that? Like, (laughs) they've been hard. Um, And the best place for me to be during that time was with other people trying to do something about it. It felt a lot better than just reading about the, the shit news. show, yeah, yeah, yeah. Rolling up our sleeves and doing something about it uh, mm-hmm. is key, right? It's like mm-hmm. putting in action, and that's how I feel about Vietnam. I, I feel like uh, you know, discovering the beautiful aspects of Vietnam is my way of coping with um, past trauma, and I, I want to move beyond it. Yeah, yeah. How do we deal with it, confront it, not shy away from it, but also like give ourselves things that like nurture us, right? Yeah. They're not, they're not dealing with it. 75, 70% of the population was born after the war. After, yeah. After the war, there's no concept of, they, it's not something that they talk about. It's right. Not that's in their, it's not even in their rear view mirror. Yeah. I mean, why I had to deal with it was that, you know, comics often tell origin stories. And I was like, okay, yeah. well, the war was kind of part of, a big part of my origin story. Also, if we don't tell that history, then we just allow it to be told by what white male historians. Mm-hmm. That, that doesn't seem great. When do you think that we are going to, I mean, God, I hate to have like these line of demarcations, right? Like, <laughs> oh, this absolute here's, you know, where the line is, but are mm-hmm. we moving gradually out of uh, trauma and, and, painful stories and are we moving into i think our generation is you know 
we, I feel like we're healing in, in a healthy way. And we are leaving behind these uh, nuggets of, of, of truth and history from our perspective. But we're also, I, I feel like we are gradually moving on. How do you feel about that? I think people are all over the spectrum. Like I've met people who are younger than me who, you know, still have a lot of shame that they're having to heal themselves of, you know, the shame that you talked about early on about being ashamed of your language or um, the food your mom packed you to school or whatever, or how you look. And growing up in the eighties and nineties, like right. it was brutal. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, you know. Yeah, exactly. Um, or being hypersexualized as a woman, yeah. like the me so horny, me love you long time. Like, yeah. Yeah, it's all really painful stuff. Um, and, you know, then, then um, there's the circumstances of how we came. And then, you know, I have a lot of strong feelings about being used as a model minority or an exceptional refugee here to, like, you know, stomp down other people's rights. I'm like, what's that about? So I think maybe my poli-sci background, like, keeps me focused on talking about politics and, and history and how we're writing it. Um, so I think it's good to attack that stuff from all angles and it's constant work. Um, a few of us healing doesn't heal the whole diaspora, unfortunately, um, but it can help. Yeah. And, um, I, the goal I think is like, uh, that narrative plenitude that Viet Thanh Nguyen, um, talked about so that everybody's got something to, to, to help them with their own particular set of issues. The plenitude. Mm -hmm. I want to jump into that artist plenitude. Uh, a lot of artists that, you know, my community of artists and filmmakers and um, musicians uh, there, we all have to sort of do these side hustles and we all have to do our teaching or jobs or, you know, we're all at it, right. We're all at the grind. And then there's, there comes a point when there is like this escape velocity where you make it out of sphere, start making money through your art. Did you see that ever coming up um, in your life? Did you kind of project that? Did you, the law of attraction, you know, did that confidence to know that if you just kept at it, you would be able to sustain as an artist? Did you have that confidence um, coming up? <clears throat> I don't know. I, I guess I had the hustle and the hard work. Um, I'm a, I'm a Capricorn sign, if that means anything, you know, I just, I just keep going. Um, and, uh, I mean, I, I, I was, I feel like I was, I was born hustling, you know, like just even to get ourselves into college, right. And pay for it. Yeah. <laughs> there wasn't any help. Um, so I felt like I had to write probably my early, earliest forms of, of writing were so that I could get money to pay for school, a lot of essay contests and applications and whatnot. So the hustle was always there and uh, yeah, the, the goals were there to get a thing made and, and then you have to buy your buy time to make big things. So I guess one thing led to another. It's hard to predict how the reception is going to be for your book. So all of that was a surprise. Yeah. And I'm glad that, you know, we have that today, you know, in our, in our world, in our Vietnamese American um history we have it documented in this beautiful work of, of art thanks did uh making it into like the bill gates top five and being incorporated into like ucla's curriculum did that change uh your perspective or your life in any way those accolades 
Um, <laughs> you know, I didn't get any I didn't get any attention from Vietnamese language press until the Bill Gates thing. So yeah, that that helps a lot. <laughs> um, Vietnamese and, and Indian uh, aunties and uncles suddenly uh, took the book more seriously. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and that's just a tiny dig at our at our community. Um, and yeah, I mean, getting getting to talk to college age students is like one of my favorite things because uh, I get <laughs> I remember getting so many questions like from from the audience and and every other question it seemed like was uh, it seemed like every other question was how do I talk to my Vietnamese American parents or my Asian American parents about wanting to become an artist or like not wanting to study what they want me to study um, so. I took it to mean like, how do I talk to my parents who are really different from me? So I guess um, going back to that ikigai flower, like the usefulness of, of mm. providing a model for people um, is, is really lovely. And like at this point, honestly, like I've gotten to, to fulfill my heart's desire with my life. And I just want to spend the rest of my time here on earth being useful and happy. If I can do the, if I can do both, I'll, that would be amazing. Yeah. How did your mom and dad and your family receive uh, the book? Um, they, they received it very well. And that was because I, I showed them parts of the book as I was going along rather than surprising them at the end with it all. So they were um, editors and collaborators from a very early time. Did they have any idea how big it would be? I don't think so. I mean, but also, you know, my parents are pretty Vietnamese. Like I, I wouldn't know that they were especially proud of it, except that sometimes they tell other people and then the news gets back to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's so typical of them. Yeah. Yeah. So typical Vietnamese. Um, are you ever going to do more work in Vietnam or live in Vietnam, be part of that fabric uh, of the motherland? Um, I definitely want to go back again to, uh, you know, keep keep it keep track of the Viet, the the Mekong Delta and the climate change issue. Um, I want to take my son back again. The last time we went was his first time, and we were only in the south, so he's he wants to see the north next time. Um, and I I would like him to learn Vietnamese. Uh, it was easier when we were there. Yeah, but that's a hard yeah that's a hard task to to teach these kids. I hope I hope to make a difference in making it easier for people to teach their kids. Like there, there's been like a there's a there's a um, like an alphabet book that I've been slowly working on, you know, uh, and there are more like Vietnamese language like kids books, like picture books. And I feel like there's so many of us, at, even just here in the U.S., right? Um, that. Actually, there are more Vietnamese speakers in the U.S. than there are French speakers, but you wouldn't know that from the infrastructure that exists. There are French schools where you can, like, you know, do your education in immersed in French, but there are there, that doesn't exist in Vietnamese. So we kind of have to create more infrastructure to make it easier. Yeah, I um, my two kids. I mean, my mother lives with me. Um, I speak Vietnamese uh, decently, and I speak to my mother entirely in Vietnamese. It's so difficult to speak to my children in Vietnamese. My wife's Taiwanese, but it's so difficult to to get them to. And it's not them; it's just me being lazy and and 
You kind of have to yeah. force yourself to do it. Yeah, well, yeah. Do you feel like a dad in Vietnamese? Is that part of it? Like, are you still a kid in Vietnamese? Oh, what a great question. I don't feel any identity as it relates to being Vietnamese with my family, with my children or my wife. I don't feel like a Vietnamese man. I don't feel like a Vietnamese father. I feel very American, actually. Mm -hmm. um, so that makes sense that the yeah. language that comes out naturally isn't Vietnamese. Yeah, because I feel like the honorifics of con vi ba might, oh, this is, I've never thought about this. Talk loaded, about right? Yeah. It makes you loaded yeah. some feelings up. Yeah, it puts barriers up because of the way that it did it for our generation. Um, I, and I don't want them to think that I'm above them. I just want them to think that I just happened to be the person that was, you know, uh, gave birth, you know, my wife gave birth to them and we just was part of that process. And we're just here to inch them along in their journey and not as a top down um, hierarchical patriarchal, you know, so it, our language is loaded with that stuff. And yeah. And then there's, there's some tenderness in the words, ba and and stuff too, right? I, I love the musicality of the language yeah. and, and I, I, I find it really comforting in a lot of ways. I think that it can be difficult to like grow up in the diaspora because your, your idea of the culture is like filtered through like your own narrower experience, right? We only had our own families. At best, we had our extended families. And maybe if we were lucky, we grew up in a Vietnamese community. So we had like more examples of what it meant to be Vietnamese. But like, if you grow up in the country, you got like 95 million people, you know, <laughs> you have more examples. So maybe you would have found like the, the dad who was the kind of dad that you want to be, who spoke in that language. But that's kind of part of why I want to go back to Vietnam a lot is to expand my idea of what it means to be Vietnamese. Yeah. I mean, I, I have such a narrow, I mean, now that you're bringing that up, I have such a narrow way. I have to open it up a little bit, narrow way of how I want my kids to perceive me. Uh, I want them to see that I'm very, very open and that I can be transparent. And I think putting these uh, titles, uh, like the way we have, it might be a little bit, you know, I think, I think just being American and the English Americans a little bit more, open and free and yeah yeah it's hierarchical uh-huh but i think the tenderness of gone viva and gone viva is uh but then i almost feel like i'm i'm not being honest and real when i try to bust out this gone viva because it's like it's so it's like made a up costume yeah, yeah it's a co uh -huh. exactly what it is it's a yeah. costume yeah you so you're gonna be like my thou when they get a little older <laughs> <laughs> but that's a costume too right mm -hmm. That would be all of I'll it. I'll be a fun one. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> my, my, my mom and I have something authentic. It mm -hmm. comes from the motherland. It comes from a rich history. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I, I love that. I love the, the, the tenderness of that relationship. But it, yeah, you're right. It doesn't, it, I, it's, it just feels off because mm -hmm. I don't think of myself as a Vietnamese um, player in that family or family player in, in Vietnamese. Yeah. Something really therapeutic about comics is, uh, like, as opposed to writing autobiography in prose, is that you have to externalize your feelings and, and you have to draw your body a lot. And actually, that was really helpful. Um, 
because when you can, if you write just in prose, autobio can be like this disembodied voice and you show a lot of your interiority. But when you're drawing autobiographical comics, you have to draw yourself into different situations. So it gives you this perspective on yourself. Um, and I, I think that helped me with this idea of like speaking Vietnamese or not being a kind of a costume change because it was it actually felt like a costume change having to draw myself. What? Does that make sense? Yeah, hundred percent makes sense. And these are thoughts that you know. I, that's why I'm so grateful to be doing these podcasts because these are thoughts that. I'm not exposed to, and regular people were just never exposed to the way like a specific art form is 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 being carried out and being executed. So thank you so much for for sharing that. Um, yeah, yeah. I had a wonderful time. A uh, little nervous because uh, you know when when you read a book that has all of your friends and so many people in your Facebook feed, you know, have spoken about <laughs> it. I remember the the wave of 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 excitement and um the accolades that i would read online and finally being able to sit here it's it, sometimes a little jarring i'm not gonna lie it's a it, it, you know i've known vietan win for 20 something years because i went to usc and when he was coming in oh, I was, okay. we overlapped and and throughout the years you know ham tran which is the, the filmmaker mm -hmm. a state um he was one of his housemates and uh so i would come over so even at that level for me was, you know, even though I've known him, it's still jarring. But when I don't know somebody and, you know, you read on, on, on the book and how it's received and how well it's received in our community, it's, it's, it'd be a little intimidating. And after speaking with people, um, you know, people are all the same and they're just wonderful human beings, Vietnamese people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I made sure to dressed down, you know, I didn't wear my leather jacket for you. I was like, okay, this is my Asian American advocacy fund hat. I'm, um, I'm just trying to be comfortable. <laughs> it's, I, it's also intimidating, um, you know, getting in front of a camera and uh, this idea that you have to like represent yourself to people mm -hmm. who have ideas about you too. It's a bit weird. It's different. It's different um, yeah. having a public public figure persona or, or keeping one up is exhausting, honestly. Yeah, it really is. And in real life, I'm a lot more uh, cowboy. I'm a lot more foul mouth. I'm, you know, I'm just looser and I'm <laughs> Let's to get together and yo. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, you know, we have to kind of, kind of button it up in these kind of interviews, but hopefully as the years go, go on and we can get back on and reconvene and, and, you know, talk about uh, other projects uh, for the next 20 years, then it becomes looser and becomes more, you know, you come down to the studio in LA uh, sometime and, you know, sit around on couches and actually talk and, 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 you know, just be more lively. Yes. Yes. We'll hit up Vit with his uh, TV show that yes. he's developing, right? <laughs> yes. Hook us up, Vit. <laughs> yes. Um, thank you so much, T. I, I really enjoyed today. Me too. This was great. Thanks, Kenneth. And thank you for, you know, making the Vietnamese podcast. It's such a cool thing to have when talking about resources that make it easier to like continue being us and figuring out who we are. Totally. This is one of those places. I appreciate the kind words. Thank you. Yeah. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? 
Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.